Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. remember the 1900s at all. It's been a few years ago. 1982 is a significant year. I turned 20 years old in 1982. If you do the math, you can figure out how old I am. It was also the year that um, I had my first date with Lisa Gassaway. She became my wife, Lisa Smothers, and was happy to change her name. And so... uh, In, uh, no, don't do that. And uh, it was also a year that uh, I fell in love with Jesus and just fell in love with uh, the Word of God, the Scripture. And I was a college student here at, uh, at then. It was Southwest Texas State. And, uh, but it was, it, was a, it was a sad year for me as well because in 1982, one of my spiritual heroes uh, was killed in a plane crash. Uh, some of you who are old enough to remember 1982, I had really just started walking strong with the Lord, and I started listening to a fellow by the name of Keith Green. And Keith Green was one of the most passionate human beings I have ever encountered in all my life. He had wild, curly hair, a big old bushy beard. It, it, it would rival yours, Jonathan, and it, it was it, it would sur- it would surpass it would surpass Dustin's, but it, it uh, but I mean just these piercing blue eyes and just the lyrics that came from him played. I mean he played the piano, he banged the piano. He just incredible musician, and uh, died at 28 years of age. And I remember that was a tough thing because because along with my hunger for God, he had been a real source of. Of, of life. The thing about Keith Green was, Keith Green was a real seeker. And so I began to learn a little bit about his life. He, he was um, of Jewish heritage, and he grew up in a Christian science home. Now, that's quite a combo, isn't it? And so when he was three years old, uh, he could sing harmony parts and play a ukulele at three. At uh, five, he could play the guitar and whenever he was seven years old, he began to master the piano. I mean, he could, he could play anything. If any of you listened to him, he was incredible. He was kind of a savant. And so by the time he turned eight, he wrote his first song. At uh, the age of 10, he recorded his first record. And then, by, and 10 was a, a big year because actually when he turned 11, he became the youngest person to ever sign with DECA records. And uh, the, the, all the, the teen magazines of the day say he was going to be the next heartthrob of the generation. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't materialize, and a guy by the name of Donny Osmond came around, and he, he took uh, all the teen uh, uh, clout there. And, and so Keith Green went a different route. This was in the 60s. 
And you, you who came up in the 60s remember a revolutionary time. And so Keith Green was always a seeker. He, he was always a musician. And the two kind of combined were, were co- uh, uh, kind of a toxic cocktail for him. By, the, by 15, he had left home and uh, was on the road trying to, to make it with his music and trying to find spiritual truth. And so, you, again, the mix in his life is pretty crazy and so he's writing music, he's living the life of the uh, revolutionary 60s, he's disappointed with his recording career, and he ends up uh, in all kind of crazy stuff, Eastern mysticism, uh, astro projection, uh, astrology, Buddhism, he joined a group called the World Family Gathering. I mean, he was just, he was looking, and he tried just about every drug you, you could try, but he, 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 he I'm, I'm, I'm thinking uh, of, of the words of Bono in my head, you know, he still hadn't found what he's looking for, you know, and he hadn't, he hadn't found it. And so finally in 1975, at the age of 21, he found what he was looking for. He found Jesus. Unfortunately, he only lived seven more years after that, but he became a dynamic voice You know, the truth is, every single person in this place today, take a look around you, is searching for something. And I want to talk to you a little bit about seeking. I ask you the question, what are you seeking? What are you searching for? You know, there there really is. There's something inside of us that we just kind of instinctively know there's got to be more. He's got to be more. See, God has wired us that way. In uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 11, it says that God has set eternity in our hearts. Let that sink in. What, what does that mean that God has set eternity in our hearts? I think it means this, that every, every human soul has a God-given longing for eternal reality. Where are you at on that journey? You might say, well, I found Jesus. What are you seeking right now? Because you, not, you never outgrow growth, do you? There's always that longing for more. There's always that longing to know deep down. But I still hadn't found what I'm looking for. Advent's an interesting season. I love, I love the colors. I love the wreaths. I love the candles and all of that. It's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipating. It's a season of searching. It's a season of soul searching. And I want to just look at the stories of three individuals today or three groups of people. And they were all seekers of the light. They were longing for the eternal reality the eternity in their hearts. And so that, that's what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning. Uh, the first, first person that I want us to look at, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. The first person is a guy by the name of Simeon. Everybody say Simeon. Simeon's an interesting guy, and we'll learn a little bit about him. Scripture says of Simeon that he was elderly. He was a lover of God, and the Spirit of God rested on him. 
How many of you like to have that said about you? That'd be good on your epitaph, wouldn't it? He's a lover of God. The Spirit of God rested upon him. And the scripture says that he was waiting, he was longing for the consolation of Israel. Some, some say he was waiting for the redemption of Israel. One version says he was waiting for the refreshing of Israel. Have you ever felt stale and you just needed some refreshing? You needed redemption. You needed something to shift. And that's where Israel was. Israel had been under the law for over 1,400 years. And there were people whose backs were breaking under the law, trying to keep the law. And others, I mean, it was like, a, how many of you know the law is like a prison? But even worse, it's the prison thinking that goes along with it that is just devastating to us. And so um, Simeon is there, he's waiting, he's longing. The Holy Spirit's on him. And, and it says in the... the uh, Passion Translation, the Holy Spirit moved Simeon to go to the temple court. I mean, he's just hanging around the temple. He goes to the temple court. And at that very moment, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, walk by with their 40-day-old son. They had gone, they were doing the rites of purification 40 days after Mary had had her baby, she was pure, she, was, she could come to the temple, and they were going to dedicate their little boy to the Lord, okay? And so Simeon is waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's in place, and then when Jesus walks up, it's like, pow, that's the one. This is what I've been waiting for all my life. The Holy Spirit told him, revealed to him, Simeon you will not die before you see Messiah. Can I tell you, that's a prophetic word for somebody here today. You're, you're, you're thinking, I need to see Messiah. I need to see Jesus. I need to encounter Jesus. Can I tell you, you're not gonna die. You're not gonna, you're not gonna shrivel up before your encounter with Jesus because he wants to encounter you this very day. I mean, he's as near as the mention of his name. He really, really wants it. And so there's Simeon. He's like, I'm waiting for the consolation of Israel. And at that moment, they walk in. Now, they're poor at this time. They haven't received all of the riches from, from the wise men of, of the East just yet. And so they're making their offering. They're, they're a couple of turtle doves. And they, just this, the most unusual couple in the world are carrying Messiah. And so we pick up the story in uh, Luke 2, verse 28. And uh, it says this, Simeon cradled the baby in his arms and praised God and prophesied, saying, this is the prophetic word that he says. He says, Lord and Master, I'm your loving servant. And now I can die. I'm content. I'm at peace. For your promise to me has been fulfilled. With my own eyes, I have seen your word. I've seen your manifestation is, is, the, is the actual language there. I have seen your salvation. What, what does Jesus mean? It's all about salvation. He's the savior of the world. I've seen it. 
And so he's, he's, he's prophesying away here. Listen to what he says in verse 32. Speaking of this little baby that he's holding in his arms, he will be the glory for your people Israel and the revelation light for all people everywhere. Now let that sink in. He's holding this baby in his arm. He says, this child will be the glory He's, he's, he's going to be the light of Israel. Israel's about to get her light back. Now, why do I say that? Where are they at? They're at the temple, right? Guess what? Herod's temple that they're in is one of the wonders of the world. I mean, it is just opulent. It is magnificent in every way that the human eye can conceive, except for one thing. It's absent of the glory of God. What do I mean by that? Did, did you know that the Ark of the Covenant is not present in, or was not present in Herod's temple? It wasn't there. That's why Jesus was not impressed with the temple. In, in 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple. They took, and, and nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant Except maybe Indiana Jones. Nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so it, it's, and at that moment, you know, what, you know what Simeon is saying to the mom and dad he's prophesying to? He's saying, listen, the light of the world has come back into the temple as Jesus has walked into the temple for the very first time. And he says, and furthermore, this light that I've been seeking all my life is gonna be for Everyone, for the whole world. The light has come to the whole world. I want you to get this. Simeon is seeking the light, but guess what? The light finds him. Somebody got it. Martha got it. He's seeking the light, but the light finds him. You, you know, uh, Keith Green wrote a song. He says, until your love broke through. You know what he's saying? He said, I searched everywhere for you, God, but it wasn't until you broke through that my life was transformed. You know, you know it's not like we have to go to Mecca somewhere and, and find God. God is just as close as the mention of his name. He's pursuing you and I. And that's exactly what's going on here. Okay, you don't look like you believe me just yet. Look, at, look, I want you to see the next verse there. It says, Mary and Joseph stood there awestruck. One version says, marveling over what was being said about their baby. I think we need to be a little more awestruck when we talk about the incarnation of God coming to planet Earth as flesh and blood, Emmanuel, God with us, not just for us, but with us and in us. Thank you, Diane. Okay, now let's go to the next character here, the next person. And um, this person is named Anna. How many of you remember the story about Anna? Anna Anna's a great, great story here. She is, uh, scripture says that she was a prophetess, which means she heard the voice of God and she revealed, she unveiled what God was saying. And she was in the temple court. In fact, she was there simultaneously as Simeon is prophesying. She's there simultaneously. And the Bible says that Anna was an aged widow. Again, we've got another uh, 
person who's been waiting. They're, they're well into age. And it says that she had been married. She was married for seven years and then her husband died. And so she made a determination in her heart that she was gonna give the rest of her life to stay there at the temple and to pray and to fast and to wait for the redemption of Israel, to wait for Messiah to come. Now, we pick up the story. If you do the math, she was old. She was 106 years old. Okay? She'd been waiting. She'd been waiting, praying, fasting, waiting. How many of you say that? That's dedication. That's dedication. She's waiting for something that we possess and many times take for granted. The king is, has already come, and yet many, many times we're, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're waiting on the next football game or we're waiting on the next whatever, you know? And so I didn't mean to hurt anybody's feelings about football games, but uh, yeah, I did. Okay, so listen, look at, let's pick it up. Let's, let's take a look at this in Luke 2, 38. It says, while Simeon was prophesying over Mary and Joseph and the baby, remember he said, lights come into the temple. The glory of God has come back. He's a revelation of light to all people everywhere. And it says that Anna walked up to them, and Joel, here's your word, and burst forth with great chorus of praise to God for the child. Joel had a word that there's gonna be an outburst today. That's what happened there. It was like, boom. Everybody else is doing what they always had done for, for thousands of years. And, and less than that, just since Herod's temple had been there, doing their everyday Jewish duties, their ceremonial stuff and all that. And I mean, it hits her like a ton of bricks. She goes, oh, this is the day. And she began to praise God for the child. It says, and from that day forward, she told everyone in Jerusalem who was waiting for their redemption that the anticipated Messiah had come. She'd been waiting all this time. She'd been searching all this time. She'd been anticipating all this time. And Jesus met her in an instant. You know, I, when I was reading this this morning, I thought, I thought about a, a passage. It, it echoes what Paul will say in the future of this. When Paul wrote this in Galatians uh, 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. You know what, you know what Anna's telling everyone that's looking for redemption for Israel? What, was it, what kind of redemption? It says to redeem those under the law from the law. She's saying, there's got to be another way. There'll be a day according to, to uh, Jeremiah 36, uh, 31, according, according to Ezekiel 36. There's going to be a day when there'll be forgiveness for all sin and the Spirit of God will live in mankind. Can't wait for the day of redemption. And she says, today's that day. Jesus has walked into the temple, the light of the world. 
And she says, we're now sons and daughters. I'm using Paul's language. We're redeemed, we're adopted into the family. We're included now. I'm ready to die now. I can die now. How often do we go through life dissatisfied, discontented, anticipating something in the future when God says, you've already got it. You've already got it all. Look what I've done for you. Let's look at the third group here. This is one of my favorites. Uh, Turn with me in scripture to Matthew chapter two. You know, there's a long break between Anna and when it continues on in that story in um, in Luke two. And here's what happens during that break in there. Uh, Luke doesn't carry it all out, but Matthew picks it up. Starting in, uh, well, verse 1 of Matthew 2. And we're going to talk a little bit about, I'm I'm going to read some to you and then we'll pick it up um, in the passage a little bit further on. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem near Jerusalem during the reign of King Herod. And after Jesus' birth, a group of spiritual priests from the east came to Jerusalem and inquired of the people, where is the child who is born king of the Jewish people? We observed his star rising in the sky and we've come to bow before him and worship. King Herod was shaken to the core when he heard this. And not only him, but all of Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard this news. So he called a meeting of all the Jewish ruling priests and religious scholars and demanded that they tell him where this promised Messiah would be uh, promised Messiah was prophesied to be born. And so they scratch their heads and they figure it out. And they go to Micah uh, chapter five and they come up with this. They say, well, he's gonna be born in Bethlehem, the land of Judah, because the prophecy states, you little Bethlehem are not significant among the clans of Judah. And out of you will emerge this shepherd king of my people. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it's a little bit confusing. I'm thinking, okay, so as we learned in Sunday school, there's three kings coming in on their camels and they come into Jerusalem and all of a sudden there's this huge uproar in Jerusalem. Did you, did you hear, hear that when I was reading it? And King Herod is furious, so furious that he calls together all his religious scholars and theologians and says, what's going on? These, these three guys on the camels want to work. Is that what really happened? I, I don't want to burst anybody. This is Christmas. I hate, you, can't, you, you can't dispel myths during Christmas or you get in trouble. You know what I'm talking about. But I am going to dispel this one. There were not three kings. There were probably a, a caravan of over 100 people that converged in Jerusalem. How many of you know that will shake you up a little bit? You see a whole caravan of a hundred or more people with camels and animals, and they're, I mean, they're packing. They're packing gold. They're packing frankincense. You can smell it burning as they come, and, and, and myrrh. I mean, they've got all kinds of gifts. They've loaded the camels down, and they've come to town because they want to worship this Jewish king. Why do you think Herod was furious? What was Herod's job? He was the Jewish king. 
I don't want anybody. I don't care if they're a little baby or whoever. Nobody encroaching on my job. I'm the king. I got the big temple. I got all this stuff, right? And there's probably already rumor about, because this is after they had made the dedication at the temple and there's prophecies. Hey, the real king has come to town and has brought light into a darkened temple. Now there's the light of the world has come. Now the law, something's getting ready to change big time. And this baby hadn't even uttered a word yet. But Herod, Herod gets shaken up. Now, who are these guys? Well, in this particular version I read says these uh, spiritual priests from the east. Your Bible probably says the magi. You know what a magi is? A spiritual priest, okay? I just simplified it for you a little bit. Some, some, some places refers to these guys as the kings of the east. Why do you think they would be called the kings of the east? They're incredibly wealthy. Who's answering these questions? Y'all, you, man, you, you're killing it, Casey. I don't, they're called wise men sometimes. You know why they were called wise men, Greg? They were wise, that's right. Now, now, that's just a kind of a big bucket term, okay? How many of you have read Daniel lately? If you go back and you'll read the, the first several chapters of Daniel, this will make a whole lot more sense. Because Daniel is, is, do you remember in Daniel 2 where Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon? And Daniel lives so long that he has kings from Babylon, uh, Persia, right? And so during Persia, this, these are the guys from Persia, right? This is about 500 or more years later. When did Daniel write his book? 530 or something? There was a group of priests in those days. They were called uh, Zoroastrian priests, okay? And anybody, anybody have, have any connection with Zoroastrianism? Okay, it's, it's, it is actually a monotheistic uh, religion. It's one of the older ones. It's very small. And they have, they have a belief about Messiah. Okay, while Daniel was there, if you go back and read it in Daniel 2, the king has this dream and he says, now I want y'all to tell me what my dream means, but even more so, I want you to tell me what the dream is and what it means. How many of y'all remember that story? Okay. <clears throat> and he says he calls together all of his spiritual advisors. Who was in that group of spiritual advisors? He, got, he had sorcerers. Um, um, what, what was, who all did he have in that bunch? Magicians. He had, um, I, wrote, I wrote down some of them here. He had en, enchanters. He had astrologers and wise men from Babylon. Sounds like the language we're using here, doesn't it? These astrologers, what does an astrologer do? They look at the stars. All of these are names for the same group of people here. And you will remember that Daniel, can I tell you, Daniel was a great disciple maker because his discipleship lasted over 500 years. Think about this. 
He pours into these guys. He was the head honcho over the palace, right? Over all these guys because his God was the only one who could tell the king what his dream was, what it meant, and over and over and over. He's protected from lions and hot ovens and the whole deal's going on, right? And these guys are going, wow, I don't think our gods can do any of that. 500 years later, Daniel lays out an incredible, go back and read it, eschatological calendar of when Messiah will come. Guess what these guys are doing? They see this light, they're astrologers, they're wise men, they're magi, they're all these things, and they have lots of money. And they pack up from Persia to a thousand miles to Jerusalem seeking this king. Come on. And that's not even the best part. They're non-Jewish. Right? These are are probably Persian guys. Wherever they're from, they're from the east and they're not Jewish. How many of you know in this day and age when Herod's the guy, it's a real no-no to not be Jewish and try to worship the Jewish God and have favoritism. Who does God show himself to during this entire story we've been looking at? Last week, when Chris was, was talking, who was Chris talking about? Who did? The shepherds. You know, where they, you know where they fit in social stratosphere? Very bottom, right? Who does God first reveal himself to? To say, you're going to be the womb that will give birth to the God-man Jesus. Little peasant girl who, who can't even afford a lamb for her sacrifice at the purification rites and the offering. Right? God, God picked, he, he always chooses the people that we would never choose. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm really glad. Aren't you glad that we're included and we don't have to be the president of, of anything? Right? All we have to do is be the president of the fan club of the right club. That's Jesus. Okay? And so, I'm sorry, there's just, there's so much here. I, I, I could just... So modern day Iran to Jerusalem. And these guys are there and we pick up the story. Let's let's look at this. It says in verse seven, Herod secretly summoned the secret priest, the Magi from the east to ascertain the exact time the star first appeared. He told them, now go to Bethlehem and carefully look, search out where the child is. And when you found him, report back to me so that I can go bow down and worship him too. It says, and so they left. They went on their way to Bethlehem. Suddenly the star appeared. Uh, They had seen in the east reappeared. And amazed, they watched as it went ahead of them and it stopped directly over the place where the child was. You notice we've gone from baby to child. Enough time has gone by. We've gone from a manger to a place, which is a house. We'll see a little later. And when they saw the star, they were so ecstatic. There's outburst. They shouted and celebrated with unrestrained joy. When's the last time you celebrated with unrestrained joy? When's the last time you had something that got you that excited that you couldn't contain yourself? These are guys that are high-ranking dignitaries. They're spiritual priests. They're people that, they're foreigners they, they probably have no clue other than they have room in their, 
their theology and eschatology for an event like this and they pack it all up and they come and when they get there, they're not disappointed. It says that they have unrestrained joy and when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they were overjoyed, filling, falling to the ground. I mean, they just wiped them out. Falling at his feet, they worshiped him and they opened their treasure boxes full of gifts and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's, that's where we get the three kings right there. Right? What's the significance? Just quickly, what's the significance of gold? Gold, gold speaks of incredible value, right? Kings had lots of gold. They're saying in the giving of this gift... This, this little baby, this little boy is the king of kings. What's the significance of frankincense? Incense burning. Worship. 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 It's a picture, it's a gift fit for deity. They say, not only are you the king of kings, but you're the God of gods. That's big praise. Now, the next one's a little tricky. What about myrrh? What is myrrh? Myrrh's a burial spice for royalty, right? You know, you know what I believe is happening here on the, on, the, on the myrrh? I believe they're saying, oh, we've come, to, we've come to worship Emmanuel. God with us. I'm just thinking all kind of weird songs. Remember that song, what if, what if God was one of us? Huh? That's what's going on right here. God is one of us. And they're saying that... Emmanuel, who will join us in our death, we get to join him in his resurrection life. Resurrection life, right? Emmanuel, God with us, the God-man who comes and lives like we live, to die like we die so that he would raise again to conquer death, right? That's what those gifts are all about. They pan his whole life. And we look at that, prophet, priest, king, the Emmanuel, God with us. Light of the world. Light of the world. So I have a question for you. Worship team, you guys can get ready to come. My question is this. What are you searching for? What is it that you're searching for? You know, I imagine every one of us in here wants meaning and purpose in life. We want significance in life, right? We want security. What are you searching for? You see these four candles over here? These four candles really picture a whole lot more than maybe, maybe many of us get during the Advent season. Somebody said, said okay, so what is the pink candle for? That's the joy candle. Maybe the thing you're searching for is joy. You need, you need some joy in your life. You're, you're really feeling anxious, you know? The, the, the other, other candle is the peace, peace candle. Maybe you need some of the peace of God that surpasses your understanding and your circumstances. The very first candle we lit is the hope candle. You know, the, the, the Bible says that, that it's Christ. In you, plural. That's the hope of glory. Our, our, our hope is his glory. 
Our hope is the glory to the world. He's the light of the world that brings hope to all. Today's candle, this one, is the love candle. Can I tell you that Jesus came to be unconditional love for all of us? Every one of those candles is fulfilled in the Christ candle. We'll talk about that on Thursday when we come together. But I want you this, this morning to just ask yourself, what is it that I'm searching for? I want to tell you, we, we find what we're searching for when we find the one who's searching for us. See, see that's, that's what Christmas is all about. It's, it's called the incarnation. You know what that means? It means that God became flesh and blood and became one of us to save and to, to seek and to save that which was lost. See, see, there's a, you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Wee little man was he? You remember that one? Zacchaeus, at the end of that story, Jesus looks at him, he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus thought that he was seeking for something. He was trying to find um, security in his money and he was trying to find fame. He was trying to find all kinds of stuff, but Jesus found him and he changed his life. I was reading a passage this, this uh, week in, and we won't take the time to look at it, but in, in Matthew chapter nine. And Matthew is, is writing his autobiography. You remember Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And scripture says that Jesus came to the tax booth where Matthew was working. And he looked at Matthew. He says he saw Matthew. See, the thing we need more than anything in the world is to know that God sees us. He's Elroy, the God who sees. And he looked at him, he saw him. And it says that Matthew dropped everything he was doing and followed Jesus. And it goes on and he said, they went to his house, over to Matthew's house, and they're eating together. And the Pharisees, the law, leaders of the law began to criticize Jesus. He says, man, who is this guy He's asking, they're asking his disciples, says, who is your leader who eats with tax collectors and sinners? You know what a tax collector was? If you looked into the eyes and you, you saw a tax collector, you know what you would see? The most despicable human being on the face of the earth if you were a Jew. See, in those days, Jews uh, if you were a tax collector to Jews, you had to be a Jew. You know why? Because Jews don't part with their money easily. Rome couldn't get money from them. Zacchaeus was a Jew who had betrayed his country, had traded, had bought a piece of, had bought a business. And he was gouging his fellow countrymen. I mean, his soul was dead, dead, dead. His eyes were hollow and black. And when you would look at him, all you saw is a guy who said, more, more, more. You know, the Jews 
had to pay um, a tax. We, we call it tithing today. They paid a temple tax, but it wasn't 10%. It was three 10%. It was 30% of their income. And Zacchaeus said, on top of that, I'm going to get more money for Rome. And I'm going to keep, or, or, or Matthew said, I'm, I'm going to keep it back. You know what? You know what Jesus saw in Matthew? He saw somebody that he knew was not that man. He saw somebody that was worthy of being his disciple. He saw somebody that that was being transformed if he would simply not seek, not search, not do anything, but surrender his life. Simply receive revelation from light and life itself and receive the grace of God. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, you don't understand how I'm kind of screwed up. Do you understand how screwed up Matthew was? You know when it says tax collectors and sinners? Do you, do you know what, what, he's, what Jesus, what the Pharisees are talking about? You know what a sinner is? The sinners were the thugs who protected the tax collectors. Because at any moment, somebody would, would try to kill them. They were, they were an enemy of the Jews. They were an enemy of their own. You, know, they were the, you remember the, the zealots? The dagger men, they had little daggers and they'd just, they'd do the suicide missions and they would uh, try to kill Roman generals and leaders and whatnot. They'd do the same thing to a tax collector. So they had people that were paid thugs. And along with those paid thugs were prostitutes because they didn't have relationship with anybody. Totally void of love. Totally void of peace in their life. Totally void of joy in their life, totally void of security in their life. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me because I believe you've got what it takes. I, I want to change everything about your life. You think that you've been seeking, but no. Matthew, I've been seeking you. See, that's what the Lord's saying to us today. He said, I'm seeking you. I've, you just think that you stumbled in here because somebody invited you. or made, He said, I've been seeking you. I've been seeking you the whole time. And I want to say furthermore that he continues to seek us. He continues to seek and save that which is lost. Well, I don't know. I don't like that. You know why we don't like the word lost? Because religion has made it mean go to hell. Well, you're lost. You're going to hell. Can I tell you, that's not what lost means. You know what lost means? It means you're misplaced. It means you're blind. It means you're wrongheaded. It means you just don't understand how good God is. It means you've lost the plot of the story. Hello? Anybody here lost? Yes, we get lost all the time, don't we? You know, that, that's why most of Jesus' greatest parables are about lostness. You don't understand who my Father is, how great He is, how good He is. He wants to save you. He wants to heal you. He wants to bring joy in your life. He wants to bring hope in your life. He wants to do all of these things. He wants to transform your life. He wants you to have fellowship with Him and know Him and be one in Him and He in you. 
That's the good news. That is the incarnation. That's the Christmas story. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Why are we not like Anna, just telling everybody that comes our way? Oh my goodness, Jesus did it all for us. Just a matter of your eyes being open and the only way that happens is to get in his presence. He'll change you, he'll transform you. I'm gonna invite our, our prayer folks to come forward and, and this morning, whatever it is that God's saying to you, you know, he wants to tell you the search is over. All you have to do is receive. So I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet and if you're here this morning, you'd say, man, I just want to receive. You, you know what the Lord's saying to you this morning. These folks would love to pray for you and, and just agree with you and watch God do what only God can do. Some of, you, some of you have some physical needs, some physical pains. God wants to heal you this morning. There's some, I, I believe there's some here this morning.